Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM and the AM. Rabbi Ruvain Tarragon, Mizrahi, RZA, Religious Zionist of America. He joined us recently. We had a very fascinating conversation about Yom Yerushalayim. Rabbi Ruvain Tarragon on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. JM and the AM, my thanks, Rabbi Goldwasser. Well, before I introduce Rabbi Tarragon, and uh, we're anxious to speak with him, let me go through the information that we've been provided so far about the uh, Mizrahi RZA, Religious Zionists of America, Yom Yerushalayim celebration. They have a, an amazing collection of videos that will be streaming on demand uh, beginning this Sunday morning. Um, remember, Sunday night is Yom Yerushalayim, Monday is Yom Yerushalayim. First, they have a uh, an incredible lineup in a video presentation entitled Tales of Jerusalem. Rav Doron Peretz, Ivan Rahav Meir, Charlie Harari, Michael Oren, um, Racheli Frankel, Rabbi Krohn, they're all part of it. Tales of Jerusalem, a video dedicated to Yom Yerushalayim 5781. Then there'll be personal divrei bracha from Israel's Prime Minister, Chief Rabbi, and the Mayor of Yerushalayim. Uh, there will be a uh, a video on Jerusalem's D-Day when heaven altered the course of history, and obviously that's a reference to the Six-Day War. And there'll be a live stream of the Rikud Galim happening on a Monday morning, meaning for us it'll be Monday morning. Rikud Galim is the big flag celebration that goes on Yom Yerushalayim in Yerushalayim, and they'll have that on the uh, website. It's all available to you, to us, to everybody at rza.org slash celebrate yy, rza.org slash celebrate why, why? And uh, we'll speak to Rabbi Tarragon about this and other issues as well. I remind you that Rabbi Ruvain and Shani Tarragon are senior educational directors for World Mizrahi, RZA. They've been in this role for five years. I cannot believe it's already five years. Wow. Brought in, of course, by Rav Daron Peretz. They are a powerhouse couple, and today we have the uh, the rabbi side of the powerhouse couple to speak with, both about Yom Yerushalayim and about everything that's going on at this point with the Jewish people. Uh, Rabbi Tarragon is somebody who um, is very familiar with Jewish education. His role at Yeshiva Dakotel is one indication of that. He is very familiar with what it's like to live in Israel after all these years after his Aliyah. And of course, he's very much in tune with how inspiring a day Lagba Omer is up in Meron. So with that in mind, we can uh, speak to him about his impressions in the aftermath of last week's tragedy. Rabbi Ruvain Tarragon, an honor, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Nachum, wonderful to be with you. Appreciate that very much. Let's start with what uh, with what happened last week. Uh, you have the responsibility not only of um, forming a message to the worldwide community in light of the events, but you have to specifically speak to your students and in some ways, because of the way social media works these days, to the students and parents in general who are uh, in Israel and uh, the students who are in Israel and the parents who are watching from around the world, what was your message to the students and all of us after the tragedy of Lag Bomer? Well, first of all, obviously it was a terrible tragedy. The death of any Jew, is any person, and for sure any Jew, brother or sister of ours, is a tragedy. The sheer number, greatest civilian tragedy in the history of the state of Israel, but also the timing. People going to Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, looking to grow spiritually, 
the Kedusha that was there, and then the flip side, Bagvomer is supposed to be the end of our mourning period, and for that day to become mourning itself, really tragic. And especially because there's no external enemy to blame. It really is our own doing, and something we could have and should have prevented and avoided makes it all the more frustrating. Um, the message that I gave to boys and parents, and as you said, in today's world, everyone's connected. And I think the boys and girls learning here for the year connected to this very strongly. Those who were there, obviously, and realized that Chassid Shalom, it could have been them. And even those not there, when the news came out that there were a number of overseas students who died amongst the victims, the boy from Yeshivat Shalavim, it helped drive home to the boys and girls that it really was something that could have happened to anyone. And the message I gave them was, number one, not to misdirect our focus. Obviously, there are people, maybe people who are negligent and responsible, and it's the government's job to figure that out and bring justice. But that's not the average citizen's place. And people shouldn't look to blame, why did these people go to Mayron in the first place? We should respect each other's traditions. And not to, chas v'shalom, talk about, there was a word used, to stampede, which implies that people stepped on each other, as opposed to a crowd dynamic where people are pushed into each other. So not to misdirect our focus. Instead, to think about what the lessons for us may be. We don't know, of course, God and why he does things, but we're meant to try and reflect on what we can take away. And the two takeaways I suggested to the boys were, number one, we know that the mourning of Sfirat Omer is because of the disrespect shown one to another. And here people died from one another, crushed each other. We need to remind ourselves how sensitive we need to be towards each other. Coming at a time where Israelis can't come together to build a government, it just reminds us of how much we need to work on how we relate to one another. Mm. And the second point I made to them was, we're coming out of a year of separation, and finally we come back together, and this happens. The past year has been a year to reflect on the value of human life and how far we go to protect it. When we come out of COVID, we need to keep thinking along those lines. We need to make sure that we're protecting each other, that we're acting in a way that protects human life. Just from the Torah angle, the Rambam puts Hilchos Shmiros Hanefesh, protecting life, together with Hilchos Rotseach, the of a murderer. Because if we don't protect human life, we're almost as bad as one who takes another's life. Our lives are too valuable and precious. We do meaningful things. Judaism believes in the value of life because we believe that our lives have great value. And we should take away from this. We need to be careful in protecting human life. We need to be careful in how we relate to each other. And most importantly, and this was the conclusion of the message, if we were spared, if we are, have the great gift of life from Hashem and good health, we're reminded that we shouldn't take it for granted, that we should use it well. And anyone who was there and survived, and anyone who wasn't there, but just sees the terrible loss of life, should reflect on how they take more advantage of their own. Rabbi Ruvain Tarragon with us from Israel. Can I assume that you had students in Mehron that night? We had students in Mehron that night. And it was a trauma for them. Baruch Hashem, we have a psychologist on staff, Dr. Carl Hochhauser, who's been working with them personally together with the rest of the staff. Um, but uh, it, it, it was a trauma, and I think it's still there with them, especially, as I mentioned, because one of their friends was amongst those who lost their lives. You have now the, um, you have now the task, I guess uh, a lot of people in Yerushalayim have this task, of... Um, 
of experiencing somewhat. I know that it, it, in a way it's a it's a stretch to say this, but I think you'll get my point. On Lagba Omer, obviously, it, tremendous joy turned into tremendous tragedy, and it happened, you know, in an instant, and we understand that. Now, uh, I think you'd agree that the uh, experience of Yom Yerushalayim, especially a year later when things are more open up, and I think, you know, things are, you know, sort of back to normal for those who are actually, uh, you know, lucky enough to be in Israel right now. Um now you have the responsibility to uh, to show your students and everyone else the joy of Jerusalem. You'll be going from essentially this uh, terrible week of Shiva, which I believe uh, you know will end Sunday morning for the last victim, and then Sunday night is Yom Yerushalayim. And uh, again, not the entire country doesn't always feel it because it is a Jerusalem day, uh, but in Yerushalayim you feel it uh, to say the least, and you're in the old city of Jerusalem every day. Um, do you? either worry or are you concerned about this next uh, change of character among the Jewish people that now we go from everyone feeling pretty down to hopefully having an international celebration of Jerusalem? A key aspect of Judaism is not allowing disappointment, frustration, and sadness to keep us from celebrating and building life. And we see this in the generations after the Holocaust. They had every reason to give up on life. But the reason we're here today as Jewish communities is because the survivors turned their sadness into something constructive of building life. And, you know, at a wedding, we break a glass to remember the Chorban, and it seems out of place because a wedding is the ultimate time of ultimate happiness. Mm -hmm. But the answer is that Judaism knows how to manage contrasting emotions at the same time. It's the only way to live life in a constructive way. We don't ignore sadness, but we don't allow it to keep us from celebrating all that there is to celebrate. And uh, I'm actually standing here outside Yeshiva Kotel, looking at uh, thousands of people for the first time in a year, walking through Yerushalayim. Each group has their own their school students, their own colored T-shirts, and they're walking through, and it's beautiful to see, because what we celebrate on Yom Yerushalayim is, of course, our relationship with Hashem, symbolized by are returning to the Kotel and to the Makom HaMikdash and the Old City, and that's you know, usually important, and Yesha, you know, Judea and Samaria, so, so that's huge. But there's another aspect, which is our connection with each other. We, Tehillim describe Yerushalayim as the Ir Shechubra the city that connects together. And on the one hand, it connects us with Hashem, but on the other hand, it connects all Jews with each other. And that famous picture of the paratroopers at the Kotel, I don't know if anyone knows, if everyone knows to appreciate that, it's one Ashkenazic soldier, <laughs> one Sephardic, and one Yemenite. All right. And that's part of it. It was Kibbutznikin and Hezder soldiers, and all kinds of different Jews. And that's why there's a beautiful idea from Rav Moshe Tzvi in In 1948, the Haganah tried to retake the old city and failed. In 1967, they succeeded. And he explains that in 1948, they attacked separately. There was the Irgun, there was the Haganah, and technically and, conceptually and, and, and philosophically, you can't take Yerushalayim when you're not fighting as one. In 1967, maybe because we felt so threatened, it was the first time there was a unity government, the people came together. And that's part of what we celebrate, too. We spoke before about Lonagu, Kavod, Zebazah, and Lag Bomer, the challenges Israel society has that express itself in being able to form or not form a government. Yom Yerushalayim should be a chance for us to put that aside and appreciate the deep connection we have with each other. And that's the beauty of the celebrations here. You, you mentioned the flag dancing and the coming together at the Kotel and in Yerushalayim. And we should celebrate that. And if 
Mehron and what happened there made us feel uncomfortable with each other. Life lost through interacting with other people. We should celebrate that there's another side, which is what we're building together here in the state of Israel. The same unity you just spoke of in 1967, we're told, 6,000 miles away, uh, was on display in Israel. I, I, I would assume you felt that from uh, Jews of all backgrounds uh, when they were focused on the tragedy last week. Yeah, they pointed out that secular Jews in Tel Aviv were giving blood. Uh, it wasn't just the Haredim, and even the Arabs, the Arab cities near Meron, provided for the people who were on their way back. In fact, there was one famous Israeli uh, journalist here who made a comment about how he doesn't feel connected at all to the event and the loss of life there, and it's not his people. The response to that was very sharp and interesting to observe people feeling that, that no matter how different we are from each other, we're brothers and sisters, we're one people, and that we know is one of the core core elements of Judaism. Right. Soviet Jewry, Israeli Jewry, American Jewry, Ethiopian Jewry, all Jews are our brothers and sisters, and we have to remind ourselves of that and strengthen those relationships. Rabbi Ruben Tarragon is with us, speaking to us literally from the old city of Jerusalem, right outside Yeshiva Kotel. Uh, well, uh, it's no secret that uh, one of the responsibilities that uh, the Mizrahi worldwide, and certainly RZA, Religious Zionists of America, here on this side of the world, have taken very seriously, especially over the last few years, is to make us feel more connected to Aretz, make us feel more connected to the state of Israel, and obviously Yom Yushalayim is a way, is an avenue to to do just that. Uh, we mentioned, and I'll of course continue to mention, that Sunday and Monday, a, a unique opportunity at the website that I cited um, for people to watch inspiring videos and really wonderful anecdotes and speeches from very well-known personalities about uh, Jerusalem. I know that that you and Mizrahi are responsible for that, and it's uh, it looks like it's a a great program. Um, and Yom Yushalayim in general is, you know, again, an opportunity for everybody around the world to feel more and more connected. Why is, and, and, and I mentioned that you're now there five years, which took me a little bit by surprise. I didn't realize that you're, that you're with Rav Daron Peretz for that long. Um, why is it that over the last few years, Mizrahi as a movement, as a, what some people would call as an organization, has been able to focus more and more on these, um, on these days, like Yom Yerushalayim, and on these issues, you you would think, especially on this side of the world, you would think that most serious Zionists in a religious realm would no longer be here, and therefore that would decrease the interest in in, in turning our attention to the Holy Land. Why, Rabbi Tarragon, does it seem to me, as a witness on the spot in the U.S., that it's just the opposite? It's an excellent question, and I'll, I'll just backtrack to the beginning of your question. Huge amount of credit to Rav Daron Perez and Rav Ari Rakoff, uh, the director of uh, the RZA in America, for their efforts, Rav Daron, on the world stage of re-inspiring Mizrahi around the world, and Rav uh, Rakoff in the United States for leading the charge there. And yeah. just mentioning about Yom Yishalayim before I relate to your question, Yom Atzimut is a day all Jews are familiar with. Right. It's Independence Day. Right. Yom Yishalayim is a finer more nuanced idea, and too often it kind of falls beneath the radar, even within Zionist and even within religious Zionist circles, and it's a great foot that Mizrahi and the RZA are making sure that this day is appreciated as well, and for those who don't know, there are almost a hundred schools and schools who are celebrating together with us on Sunday and Monday with the Mizrahi initiative, and each one getting the materials that you mentioned, each one in their own way, but part of Am Yisrael together. And the question you asked, 
there shouldn't be any, and there should no longer be a community of Zionists <laughs> around the world. So interestingly, you know, Mizrahi was a huge force in the beginning and mid-20th century, and then as an organization it became less forceful because I think part of the assumption was, and maybe in reality, the leading Zionists moved. Um, as you know, there are many people who identify strongly with the state of Israel, yep. but are still in Chutzlaretz, and there's the famous line that American Zionism is when one Jew convinces a second Jew to write a check to give to a third Jew to convince a fourth Jew to make Aliyah. Right. Um, but the point is that people are close with Israel, but used to life abroad. And making Aliyah really hinges on flipping a switch in one's mind from being used to your life being wherever you are abroad to turning to seeing your life in Israel. And I think it's moved forward a bit because life in Israel has become easier and easier for overseas people. But it's still a mindset that a lot of people are still in, that my life is in New York, my life is in Chicago, my life is in Los Angeles. That's where we live. And the Baruch Hashem people are able to come learn here in Israel and visit Israel. And I think part of the goal is to be able to connect to it in a stronger way so that you can make that transition from Israel being a wonderful place you feel comfortable to Israel being a place for your own future. And uh, some, each, gen, each family has to have a generation that makes this, that transition for the family to start building it in Israel. And days like Yom Atman and Yom Yerushalayim, I think, are days for each family to reflect on how they can try and translate their dream of living in Israel one bit more. I guess it just takes some people a little longer than it takes others. On Sunday and Monday, May 9th and 10th, connect to Yerushalayim with religious Zionist communities around the globe. You can access original educational content and a live feed from Israel of inspiring speakers. The video links are live this coming Sunday. I mentioned that a very, very impressive list of speakers will actually be speaking about Jerusalem. Tales of Jerusalem is the name of that presentation. Jerusalem's D-Day, when heaven altered the course of history, is, of course, a look back at 1967. There'll be greetings online from the Prime Minister, the Mayor of Jerusalem, and the Chief Rabbi of Israel. And as Rabbi Tarragon just said, listen carefully, because I don't know what community, what synagogue, what school wouldn't want their name added to this. Online, there is a list of communities that are already celebrating with Mizrahi Yom Yerushalayim. And uh, if you go to the uh, RZA website, rza.org slash celebrate YY, again, rza.org slash celebrate YY, you'll be able to um, to do the same, to add your name or your organization's name, your school's name, your synagogue's name to all of that. The live stream of the Rikud Galim live from the streets of Yerushalayim, the flag parade, if you will, uh, will take place at rza.org slash celebrate YY on Monday starting at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Again, this coming Monday starting at 9 a.m. Eastern time, rza.org slash celebrate YY. Are you getting the impression, Rabbi Tarragon, that it will be full capacity and like a quote-unquote regular year in Yerushalayim on Monday? I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of excitement. People haven't had these mega events in over a year, even though Israel has been opening up. And Yom Yerushalayim is a wonderful day to have it, especially because the key events are outside. As you mentioned, the flag dance, I anticipate there being huge numbers and a tremendous amount of excitement. So those who can be here should enjoy, and those who can't should tune in, as you mentioned, to at least join from a distance. 
And it looks like a, um, you know, as much as every Yom Yerushalayim, I mean, I know when we do our special here, obviously we do a lot of actualities from 1967. Some would say, you know, they're hearing the same thing every year. And obviously for many people it sounds fresh and new the way we present it, thank God. But it looks like that you've you've come up with some unique ways to help people celebrate. I love the live stream idea. I love the look at 1967. People don't remember uh, what Yerushalayim and the Jewish people were going through. Uh, back in 1967 during the war, and getting a cross-section of people, and this might be the key, by the way, to one of your successes with RZA Mizrahi, frankly, the cross-section of people, speakers who uh, are identified with a whole variety of categories of the Jewish people and of the Jewish community coming together to speak about Yerushalayim. I think that's also an indication of Ir Shechubra Layachdav. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's important. Most of us were either not alive or very young when uh, the Six-Day War occurred, and people don't know the story. They don't appreciate how miraculous, what great of gift it was, not only the victory, but Yerushalayim, that nobody thought for a minute was going to be something that would be returned to the Jewish people. That's what this D-Day is about, how surprising it was that suddenly Yerushalayim was returned to us. And about the year Shechobar Layachtov, that's a critical idea. We're too fractured as a people, and we have to figure out ways that we can bring as much as possible from Israel to the table for as many communities around the world as possible. Obviously, we all have our unique hashkafic nuance, but we should try and transcend that in general and for sure for a day like Yom Yerushalayim and coming together. Right, but some of us are often stubborn about our unique hashkafic nuance, and it seems you, through the educational conferences you've done, through the presentations that, you, uh, uh, that you've that you had in the past, plus, of course, now this is a good example, it, it seems like y- you, you always feel that reaching out and including as many as possible is much, much more important than that uh, myopic, hashkafic nuance. I, I agree, and I would say it this way. Each one of us should have our way of looking at things and be very strong about that. That's who we are. It's what makes us us. But when we function together as a community, we need to try and step forward with as many people, as many types of people as possible. And as we move towards Shavuot, we're reminded of the programs from last year of Ayichan Sham Yisrael Neged Ahar, right. which expressed that idea right. of bringing together people of different hashkafos to sh- emphasize what we share with each other instead of what makes us different. No question about it. Uh, Rabbi Tarragon and I remind everybody, celebrate Yom Yushalayim. You have an amazing way of doing it with RZA Mizrahi, the religious Zionists of America, rza.org slash Celebrate YY, rza.org slash celebrate YY. And Monday morning uh, will be the time to uh, check out their live stream from Yerushalayim, which is, I mean, that, that I guarantee you the shot's going to be filled with a lot of flags, a lot of flags of Jerusalem, a lot of flags of Israel. Um, just another minute, Rabbi Tarragon, because I'm sure plenty of people are curious. Uh, uh, you're at the tail end of the um, uh, school year in Israel. Uh, do things look and feel a lot different in, in Yeshiva Dakotel, in terms of, um, you know, you started the year with a lot of regulations and pods and movement or non-movement of students. Are things a lot more normal now? Oh, for sure. First of all, there are no more pods. So everyone's able to be together with one another. And there's no more need for masks within the Yeshiva where everyone's vaccinated. And, right. and so the Yeshiva feels like like a regular year. So so um, as, as you were recruiting... The state of Israel is still being cautious, but right. things are back to normal. Barbara. So as you yeah. recruit and get ready for the next school year, it, you are anticipating that, that, that young men will show up in Elul and it's going to be the way you remember it. Please, God, we're full for next year. Please, God, and we're hoping that things will be 
as normal as they are now, if not more. We'll mm-hmm. all keep davening that America and Canada and all the countries where the boys come from and all the countries around the world should continue emerging from this and that the state of Israel should continue its good health. And uh, hopefully we'll be past this and appreciate what we didn't appreciate before. Amen. We greatly appreciate your thoughts and a happy Yom Yerushalayim to you. Thank you, and to you and all of your listeners, Nachum Yerushalayim, for all of your work. Much appreciated. Rabbi Ruben Tarragon, always a delight to speak with him. And uh, you heard all his messages, a lot of messages in there. The most important message right now is I want to make sure that people are focused on Yom Yerushalayim. That is the one that... Um, that I want to focus on going forward. He had a lot of messages about the immediate past, very important. But I just want to remind everybody that that in addition to us, and we take our role very seriously on Yom Yushalayim, in addition to us, there are other ways that have been introduced to connect us to Jerusalem and Israel. And the Mizrahi has been an absolute trailblazer in that area. rza.org slash celebrate yy. rza.org slash celebrate why, why? Thursday morning at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course, any beloved NSN app. That was our conversation with Rabbi Ruvain Tarragon. Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld of the Rutgers Cancer Institute joined us recently to talk about a very important study that people in our audience can get involved with. This is uh, my conversation with... Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Have a nice day. JM in the AM, my thanks to my Goldwasser, of course. Wednesday morning broadcast with all the conversations we've had about uh, COVID-19 on these airwaves, and we've had many. In fact, later on, we have a conversation in the 8 o'clock hour about the vaccine. Uh, but with all the conversations we've had, it's amazing that we've never addressed the genetic component to COVID-19, and I say this as B'li'ayin hara, B'li'ayin hara, we have been, meaning the Seagulls, have been in many, many COVID-19 compromising situations, especially back in March and April of 2020. And thank God, B'li'ayin hara, none of us were affected, and we don't stop thanking God for that. And then I remember a relative of mine who said, um, you know, I, I had no symptoms or anything. I went to the doctor and all of a sudden I had antibodies. And we're saying, I wonder why certain people, you know, are getting this disease. That he had antibodies, obviously he had the disease, and suffering none at all, nothing. And some people, of course, we know just how much they suffered and how difficult their end was. Well, with us live via telephone, somebody who might be able to provide some answers to all of this. Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld is with us. He's manager of biomedical informatics, shared resource and assistant professor for the center for symptoms and computational biology at the Rutgers cancer Institute of New Jersey. Uh, they're working on a study. He and his team to determine whether genetic testing results from gift of life are able to help predict COVID susceptibility and symptoms. Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Uh, I, so I, bring reg- I bring regards from Jay Feinberg of Gift of Life. He's <laughs> spoken to you quite a few times. I thank you very, very much. He's an amazing person and has changed the world and has really saved many, many lives, as we know. Um, yes. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you heard my opening, and uh, yes. I, I, I don't um, I don't take it lightly that, thank God, Baliyan Hara, God has been very good. Uh, to me and my immediate family, but it is fascinating. I mean, I could tell you at least five stories 
of being in situations, obviously I didn't realize it at the time, where uh, I was right next to, being spoken to, um, in contact with people who not only had COVID, but people who passed away from COVID. And thank God, you know, my kids joke, oh, you know, it's it's not in our genes. We're immune. We're naturally immune. So we, we of course, you know, say this is a joke in our house. And you heard the story about my relative that, uh, you know, all of a sudden just discovered he has antibodies, never suffered any symptoms. So now I ask you, before we talk about the gift of life and the study you're doing, I ask you, is there anything to this? Is it possible that a significant part of the globe's population is simply immune or 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 has the ability to completely fight off COVID-19? I mean, there definitely are people who have lower susceptibility. It came out probably about a year ago that people with type O blood have lower sensitivity. It's known for a lot of diseases. There are people we know for HIV. There are some people who can't get HIV. On the uh, on, on the on the O blood type, I mean, the, in yes. other in other words, there are people with O blood type that have had COVID. But but you're, right. but you're saying is the percentages are if you have O, you are less susceptible to getting it. Yeah, and there's a lot of other markers we've looked at in the genome, and we're trying to see if the gift of life stuff helps. There's. It- is there any, definitely something happened? Is there anything? The is, is there anything else that a lay person like? See, when you say if you if you have if you have blood type O, you're less susceptible. Okay, I, I get what that means. Are there any other generalities that a guy like me would understand? Or once we start exploring this, you're getting into really detailed stuff regarding genetics. I mean, there's no, there's nothing else that's popped out that's really clear, but it definitely happens. You have a family where everyone's sick except for the mother. Right. So there's there's definitely something going on, and there's a lot of scientists out there trying to figure this out. And your point being, in that case, you examine the mother; she has O, a blood blood type O. She might. I'm saying the right. blood type it definitely right. has a lower susceptibility, but we're still not. You're still not out in the clear. You know, my kid heard he had O blood type. Oh, I can not wear a mask. Right. Back here, that's not what it means. It means that this is all a statistical, scientific argument, not. Yeah, which is hard to explain to a lot of people. All right, I hear that. You're not recommending people don't wear a mask if they think that they are not susceptible. Dr. Jeffrey Roosevelt's with us. All right, so you introduced yourselves to, yourself to us last week that you're doing a study trying to determine whether genetic testing results from Gift of Life. I remind everybody that Gift of Life, which is out there, you know, again, saving lives and creating a, a bank of potential donors, um, uh, literally, you know, the, the way they do that is by swabbing. And we always talk about, you know, go and get swabbed. Gift of Life has made a, a point of getting to as many communities as possible to get as many people as possible into that, uh, into that bank of people. So now you're saying that with the test results from Gift of Life, the genetic test results, you might be able to predict the susceptibility and the, whether someone um, is likely to get symptoms from COVID-19. So we're not at that level of saying with a particular person. We're trying to figure out. So Gift of Life tests what are called HLA markers. It's what makes you you, your DNA, and that's why it's needed for transplants. So the idea is part of what makes a person themselves genetically in their blood cells, that could be part of the explanation for why people would or would not get COVID. The Gift of Life, so re- trying- the gift of life registry is how large? They have a few hundred thousand people, depending and, on how you count it. And, and you have already, or you can, examine how many of those profiles? 
We can examine any of them. We're trying to get people to sign up for our survey so we can have their COVID information linked up with uh, the genetic data. So you'd like, in other words, it, to the ideal, and if I, you know, tell me if I'm understanding this right, the ideal is you want someone who's been uh, affected by COVID to get swabbed and join that registry. Would that be the way of putting it? No, we want people people who are already in the gift of life, our 400,000 people, a large percentage of whom are your listeners, right. want them to go to join our study, just go to giftoflife.org slash COVID study, fill out a five-minute survey, and then we can look at their COVID, whether they've had COVID or not. And we, keep, we ask, you know, did you have COVID? Did family members have COVID? How many people do you live with? How bad was your COVID? And then we link that up with the genetics to try and figure out what genetic markers determine COVID susceptibility and severity. All right. So anybody who's ever, right, ever would be the right word, anybody who's ever participated in a gift of life swabbing, anybody ever, listen carefully, audience members, because we need you for this, anybody who's ever participated participated in a gift of life swabbing, and that is the cheek swab, correct? Yes. If you've participated and you've had your cheek swabbed, and now you assume, based on that, that you are a member of the Gift of Life Registry, if that's the case, there is a web page you must go to, and that is giftoflife.org slash COVID study. Correct? That's the right address? Yes. Gift, yes. Of, gift of Life. The reason I say it is because I'm on the page, but the, you know the URL changes at the top. Giftoflife.org. Slash COVID study, giftoflife.org slash COVID study. They're going to ask you for your name, for your birth date, for contact information, and they will, uh, I assume, what, be in touch or send additional surveys? What's, how's it going to work? That You go to that webpage and they'll automatically send you a custom link nice. with your information to make sure that people are who they say they are. Got it. And not confusing. Got it. Right. Uh, and the, the important thing is that this is whether you have or have not had COVID. Right. We want, we want to know. Right. Don't listen to what I said earlier, folks. It's anybody out there, whether you have had COVID or whether you have not had COVID, no matter what your COVID situation is, Gift of Life needs you if you've been swabbed at some point over the last many years. Gift of Life needs you to go to giftoflife.org slash COVID study. Giftoflife.org slash COVID study. Fill out the form, and by filling out that form with your information, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld and his team will be able to explore all of these issues further. Um, how long has this been going on, this study? We've been doing it for a few months. We have over 8,000 people who responded, which is an incredible number, but there's still another few hundred thousand people who've been swapping gift of life. Yeah, I hear that. The important thing is that right, for transplant, they stop when someone is around 40. Right. But here, for us, it doesn't matter if someone's 80 or 90 and they were they got swabbed 30 years ago we still want them right so literally anybody who's in that registry when does when does a study become a study you just said 8000 when when do when do results of your research get published when you hit a tipping point of of how many and i know that you know every case is different but can you give us a general idea about how this works how how lab work then turns into you know a published study so when you've reached a certain level of re- a result that makes sense for ours, because we're looking at the HLA markers, there are tons of possibilities in people. We need a very large sample size. Mm-hmm. Right? For a lot of studies, I do 9,000 or 10,000 is incredible. 
For this, we'd ideally want 15,000. Right. Well, for some studies, 10 people is good. It's, it's Once you've found something that you understand well enough and you think is can be replicated, that's when you publish it. Well, this is definitely attainable. I mean, you're at 8,000 already. You could certainly, you know, I mean, yes. we could certainly, as we continue to spread the word, especially in our community, we have a lot of people who are very active when asked to participate in things like this. So everybody out there, whether you've had COVID, not have COVID, whatever it was, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If you've ever been swabbed and if you are now therefore part of the Gift of Life Registry, Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld and his team can't emphasize enough how your profile, how what you how 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 um um what we know about you scientifically can help determine and help find out key information regarding the COVID-19 disease. If you've ever been swabbed, if you're part of Gift of Life, go to giftoflife.org slash COVID study, giftoflife.org slash COVID study and participate. And um, as this, as you heard, as this uh, study grows larger and more and more people participate, uh, we get closer and closer to published results. And who knows what we'll learn from this? Um, I, I guess you as a scientist never have expectations about what you might learn from this, right? You never, you, 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 you never say to yourself, uh, you know, I, I mean, do you say, maybe you do. Do you say to yourself already at 8,000 people that you're leaning in a certain direction, not asking you for results, but that things are leaning in a, you know, to reveal a certain piece of information, or you would wait until the whole study's finished to even start that whole thing? We'd wait until we... I mean, we've done some analysis just to get rough ideas, but as the numbers grow, things can totally change. Is this going to help with other diseases? Obviously, you're doing this with COVID-19, but we've never made this plea on the air before. Can this help with research with other things, especially you say that, uh, I mean, we know that you're at the Rutgers Cancer Institute, and you know how anxious our community and every community is to get more and more... Uh, um, uh, help for people who who um, you know suffer, especially from cancers that have no cure at this point. Uh, is it possible that this information is going to help? This particular information won't, but there's a ton of genetic data out there and studies we're doing about cancer and other diseases. But the reason we thought this was interesting is for for influenza, there, you know, the flu. There are people who are sensitive, people who are less sensitive. As I mentioned, HIV. There are people who are more and less sensitive. So there's something there in the DNA that helps explain this. Right. Not totally, as I said, but it's definitely a support. So, I mean, not to get um, into an area that's probably unfair for me to ask you about, but it's possible then that with all the restrictions and with the globe shutting down for all these months, it's possible, and again, I know there's no scientific evidence, but I'm just conjecturing here, it is possible that those who are susceptible to this disease are going to get it one way or the other, right? Especially if they're ever exposed to a situation where they can get it. And those who are, you know, who have a strong immune system against this disease, it's very possible no matter how much they would have interacted with people who have COVID and no matter how much they would have been in super spreader situations, they simply may never, ever get it. Would that be safe to say? I wouldn't want to go that far. It's, it's hard to make that statement unless you've taken someone and really, really You'll put them in a room full of COVID to test that. No one right. has or wants to do that test on people. But yeah. there are definitely, what I'll say, there are definitely people who have a stronger sensitivity and people who have a weaker sensitivity. And also, the other thing which is interesting is why oh, my kid gets a fever. Right. You have to get other people who are sick in the hospital. You take two healthy 35-year-olds, and most of that, one is 
on oxygen and the other one has a fever, doesn't even know anything happened to them. Right. That's what we're interested in. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, all this that I just mentioned was because of a conversation I had the other day with someone who was conjecturing, you know, wouldn't it be unbelievable if we found out that even that even if the world would never have shut down anything, we'd still have the same number of people who passed away and who had COVID? And I know you can't comment on that, but I'm just saying that, you know, as as lay people, <laughs> we have the right and the tendency to, you know, to bounce these topics around, so... Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So there, I know there's no science behind it, but boy, if in retrospect we find out that that was the case, and a lot of people have suffered for absolutely no reason, that's uh, to say the least. Uh, those of you out there who have ever, if you're just tuning in, listen carefully. Those of you out there who are part of the Gift of Life Registry, no matter how old or young you are, no matter how old or young you are, this is not a, a as Dr. Rosenfeld said, it's not a transplant situation. This is just an information situation. No matter how old or young you are, if you are part of Gift of Life, if you're in their registry, they need your help just to get basic information regarding you and COVID, even if you never had COVID, if you never heard of COVID. They just want basic information about your experience uh, over the last 15 months. So please go to Gift, if you've ever been swabbed and if you're part of the Gift of Life registry, giftoflife.org slash COVID study giftoflife.org slash COVID study. And by the way, Dr. Roosevelt, this is a good opportunity for us to plug that in general, it's a good idea for people to go to that website and make arrangements to get swabbed. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and we're also trying to do it to get it to grow. There's lots of people out there. And in fact, this year, we're having a hard time. Most kids, people get recruited on college campuses. Right. So oh, People sit up a table in the middle of the college, and now right. college is totally virtual, right. we have a lot less people. So we're definitely looking for people to join. We're always looking for more people to be able to match for yeah. people who need transplant. And Gift of Life does tremendous work, helps hundreds or thousands of people a year, but there's always more people we could help as we grow our registry. You know, we always laud the first responders and the people, the healthcare workers on the front lines, and rightfully so. Of course we should laud them. Uh, but it's also nice to laud people like yourself who are in a lab all day and nonetheless still doing life-saving work. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Doc- talk to you. Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld, Assistant Professor, Center for Systems and Computational Biology, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. He and I and Jay Feinberg and everybody at Gift of Life is encouraging anyone and everyone, no matter what your age, who has ever been swabbed and is now part of the Gift of Life registry, please go to giftoflife.org slash COVID study, giftoflife.org slash COVID study. And my thanks to Dr. Rosenfeld on this Wednesday morning at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld. Joma's Dr. Amy Barron was on recently. She's an expert on pregnancy and fertility. She spoke about those issues as it relates to COVID-19. My conversation with Dr. Amy Barron from Joma here on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. We've been talking about the uh, COVID-19 vaccine on these airwaves. Oh, yes. Boy, we have been talking about the COVID-19 vaccine on these airwaves, and for good reason. We want to make sure that our community gets vaccinated and uh, bring herd immunity to our community and the world. Why not? Big shout-out to our friends at Joma. Um, They have been a tremendous resource of information for our community. They have had amazing events online that have been very informative. 
So the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, you get a big thumbs up and a big thank you. And those of you looking for more information about uh, all their topics, um, including the one we're about to talk about now, you can go to COVID-19 resources on the homepage at joma.org. Again, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org. Amy Barron, Dr. Amy Barron is founder and executive director of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, a not-for-profit organization that utilizes social media to support Jewish individuals and families as they are struggling to have a child. It provides a warm and nurturing space for those going through infertility, pregnancy loss, infant loss, surrogacy, or adoption, in addition to connecting those families to resources in the Jewish community at large. Dr. Barron was formerly the director of innovation and growth at Nahama Comfort, that we featured, we have featured them on the air, has also worked as an attending pediatrician in a newborn nursery and neonatal intensive care unit at St. Luke's Roosevelt before taking a leave of absence after her third miscarriage. And she's with us live via telephone to talk about COVID-19 and obviously her area of expertise. Dr. Barron, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I guess three questions, because you probably could answer all three at the same time. How many people have asked you if people uh, currently in fertility treatment should have the vaccine? How many people who are expecting have asked you if they should have the vaccine? And third question, what have you told the people in those two categories? (laughs) All excellent questions, and I think (laughs) I've been asked them about 12 gazillion times um, since the vaccine was even thought of um, in the, you know, minds of the researchers. Um, look, the, the, the situation is, is like this. You know, there are the, there, the community, my community, the fertility community, the community that I support is, in general, very hesitant to put anything into their bodies that might possibly harm their babies and with good reason. Right. You know, we, we know that, you know, anything, uh, you know, some people go all organic, gluten-free, you know, like you know, people are hesitant to take medications. We know like specifically individuals, lots of individuals who have mental illnesses, you know, they, they sometimes have this like, you know, notion that they need to come off their mental illness medications because it's going to be harmful for the baby. Like there, there are a lot of um, myths that are surrounding fertility and pregnancy where people assume that anything that they put into their bodies could potentially have a negative effect on their babies and they want to be as natural as possible, whatever that means. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, the, the people in this community are coming from that mindset. So that's sort of the first thing that we just have to acknowledge, because if we don't acknowledge that and we just say, like, do anything, eat anything, do anything, like, you know, one of the first things that people say when you're pregnant or when you're thinking about it, don't eat raw fish, right. don't have certain kinds of cheeses, right. don't drink alcohol, you know, like all of these things, like people are very careful. So that's the first thing we have to acknowledge. And, and there is good data to support that. In regard to medications and specific and, and vaccines in general, without even talking about the COVID vaccine yet, you know, there have been many, many, many studies. There are specific kinds of medications that are classified as class, class A, B, C, D, you know, unknown. And we know that there are certain medications that are safe for pregnancy, safe for individuals who are going through fertility, those that have been not unstudied like we call them category C, 
and those that have been shown to have terrible effects on the pregnancy. So we, we know though those things exist and that research exists. Things like Tylenol, totally safe. Mm. Things like um, thalidomide have, has shown to be not safe. So, you know, and, and the, those, those kinds of medications, and all these kinds of medications run the gamut of everything in between. Right. Then with vaccines, what we are not talking about the COVID vaccine yet, we know that certain vaccines are recommended for individuals during pregnancy because if the, the mother hasn't had that, hasn't had the specific disease yet, if she does get the disease during pregnancy, it could have terrible effects on the baby and on her. And so while weighing the risk-benefit analysis of should she get the, if she gets the illness or if she gets the vaccine, you know, for lots of vaccines, there are long-term studies out there. The research has borne out that it's more beneficial to get the vaccine even with the small potential side effects or the effects that might be terrible as opposed to getting the vaccine, that the vaccine is a much right. safer way to deal with it. Is, is, that what's hap- you- is that what's happening now in this country? Are a good number of pregnant women getting the vaccine? Right. So, so that's exactly what I was just going to say. So the recommendations have come down that it is for pregnant individuals. We know we've seen we have the data from the last year ish, you know, a little right. bit more than a year of when pregnant women get COVID. We know what happens. Some of them, along with the regular population, do OK, but most of them really have a terrible course. We've seen many individuals end up with severe illnesses and also, you know, in the ICU. And there are pregnant women who have died. Pregnant women are considered to be immunocompromised. Their immune system is not as robust as as a typical individual. And so if they should get COVID, then their illness tends to be more severe than the average person who is their age. And so we are recommending the vaccine, we meaning from the medical sciences, we are recommending the vaccine for pregnant individuals because of this exact reason. Because, yes, like, do we know definitively how COVID is going to affect you and your body and your baby definitively? No. But we know that there is an increased likelihood that it's going to be terrible. And we'd much rather save you that terribleness and God willing save your baby with the vaccine than not have the vaccine. And and I would I'm gonna add one further thing. Often when we do these kinds of vaccine sort of education and in general, not only with the COVID vaccine, the recommendation is, you know what, get it in the second trimester or later or even before you're considering getting pregnant, because during the first trimester is when all of the organs are developing, all of the different different cells to differentiate into different body parts. And so that, that's the time of most, um, I, I'm using the same word again, differentiation, growth in terms of the brain and all the other different pieces. After the second trimester, and this goes for the COVID vaccine, all vaccines, and also lots of medications, and I'll talk about myself in a second, the recommendation is if you're going to do it, do it before you get pregnant, 
or do it in the second or the third trimester. And I'll even bring this back to myself. I'm, you know, I support women who, women and families who are going through infertility, pregnancy loss, any struggle to have a child. I personally went through six miscarriages, three of which, excuse me, four of which were in the second trimester. And that entire time period was horrific and horrible. I, I full on depression and terrible amount of anxiety anytime I was getting pregnant, even after that first miscarriage, because I was just afraid, terribly afraid, and sometimes even having panic attacks about the pregnancy. Now, in my last pregnancy, which ended up resulting in the birth and the like amazingness of my twins, who are now seven, I was also having this terrible anxiety, and especially around the times when I lost the pregnancies previously. So I, I in those four previous pregnancies, I lost the, those pregnancies in this at the 16 or 17 week mark. And so the weeks leading up to those that time period yeah. were intense periods of anxiety and I was having terrible panic attacks. Can imagine. And I went to see a psychiatrist and I said to her, along I was you know, in therapy the entire time trying to manage those feelings, but I went to see a psychiatrist because I was really not functioning. And I said, like, is there anything here that's safe for me to take? For me just to feel like I can function again, I have three other children, I need to be able to take care of them, I I need to make dinner, you know, Shabbos, et cetera. And she said, look, she said, you know, the research is not great. Like, let's call it what it is, specifically for anxiety. But in consultation with my OBGYN at the time, she said, you know, for you, the worst time is the second trimester, and especially the days and weeks leading up to that point for mm-hmm. you when you lost those babies. Mm-hmm. I, she said, I'm completely comfortable with you taking a short-acting medicine or any kind of medicine in the second trimester because we know that it's beyond the first trimester and we know we're not going to affect how the babies are developing. Right. Understood. And that's what I did, and my babies are fine. Not their children. <laughs> but, but yeah, your babies are no longer babies. Baruch Hashem. Dr. Amy Barron is with us. Um, kudos to our friends at Joma. Obviously, with Dr. Barron's appearance here, I think we could safely say that she is under the proper circumstances, and obviously everyone should speak to their doctor, uh, recommending the COVID-19 vaccine. By the way, before I asked you, uh, I, have a, I have a question I want to ask you about your experience, but aside from that for a moment, um, w- would you say the same thing with the flu shot? Do you recommend or do, d- does the medical community in general in this country recommend that pregnant women get the flu shot on a regular basis? Yes, excellent question. Um, exactly the same recommendations, exactly the same. Um, and I believe, I actually, I, I'm not... I, I'm not sure about this. Please check with your OBGYN because I am not a an OBGYN by training. Right. I am a pediatrician by training. My right. the work that I do is in support and emotional support right. of the fertility community. Um, the first, the flu vaccine is recommended exactly in the same way and exactly for the same reason um, 
for pregnant women and individuals who are trying to get pregnant because for the same reason, this depressed immune system, the, if you get the flu while pregnant, you can have a a terrible course that's unlike someone else of your age. I don't remember whether the recommendations are getting the flu vaccine during the first trimester is okay. That's, that's the piece that I don't remember. But it is absolutely definitely recommended for pregnant women. Dr. Amy Barron's with us. Now, I, I, based on what you just said in terms of your qualifications, it might be unfair to ask you this question, but you know, you could always say that, <laughs> that you have no answer. You know, we've spent a good part of this morning because of the um, a study being done at Rutgers with Gift of Life talking about the tendency of somebody, you know, being susceptible to COVID. And, and the suspicion is, and again, you know, I speak completely unscientifically, the suspicion is that, that, o, that type O blood is, uh, you know, just an example. Um, you know, obviously people with type O blood have gotten COVID and will probably continue to do so, but, you know, at a much lower rate, it seems, than, than people with other blood types. Just giving an example of what I mean by tendency. W- with all your experience, have you ever come across why some women have a tendency to go through what you went through? Does anybody have a clue as to what circumstances or situations might be uh, a contributing factor to that type of, uh, of difficult experience that you had? You were referring to my repeat pregnancy loss. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, there, there, the answer is, is we are starting as a scientific community and a research community, we are starting to understand why, um, why it can happen to some individuals. And there's still so much about medicine that, and science, as we all know, that we still do not understand. Right. Um, you know, we, we know that there are certain medical conditions, there are certain clotting disorders, um, there are certain immunologic conditions. There are certain genetic disorders. There are definitely things that exist that we know about that can cause repeat miscarriage um, or repeat pregnancy loss. And you know, it's it's the list is very long, but they generally fall into one of those three categories. What I and we in the medical community always recommend is that. If, you know, we say that if you've had one loss, not that it's typical and not that it's not horrible and not that it's life altering for so many individuals, Mm -hmm. but we know the statistics are that one in four pregnancies end in a loss. And so specifically in our community, you know, when we're having large families, the reality is, is that miscarriage has happened either to yourself or to someone that you know very well. Right. And so it's a, it's a common phenomenon in our community. And so if you've had one, often it's, it's something that happens. And most likely, if it's in the first trimester, it's a genetic anomaly in that the chromosomes didn't come together in the proper way to create a perfect human being. And it's part of what, what you know, doctors term, and, and I think also what, what Hashem like, was thinking about in terms of a little bit of natural selection, right. that, that these babies were not meant to be right. born. We're not, these babies, it's, it happens. We have eggs and we have sperm that don't have complete sets of their genetic material. Right. And even though, you know, 
in in a you know in an ideal circumstance those things do not come together and you do not get pregnant sometimes you do and sometimes what happens is those pregnancies end in a loss and they end in a loss very quickly and so we say in the medical community that if it happens once grieve and get all the support and right. an emotional you know, emotional comfort that you need because meet pe- losing meet a pe- child. Meet people like you. I can only imagine what these women would be going through if they didn't have people like you around. Look, I, I you know, I, thank God that lots of lots of support in the Jewish community exists. Nechama right. Comfort, A Time, Kenafayim. Right. There are a lot of organizations, including myself, including I was supposed to have a baby that exists for this exact reason. But if there's so if there's one, then reach out and get the support. Right. But if you have more than one, then that's the time really to start pressing your doctors and getting testing done and really trying to get answers because one is horrible, two is a pattern. You and know, patterns need to try to be, you know, figured out so that it doesn't happen again. And hearing your stat, twenty five percent end in miscarriage, hearing that stat makes me want to say to all of us, men and women out there, fathers and mothers, just how blessed and lucky we are to be parents. Because sometimes, you know, someone, I was once at a Suda Soda for somebody who survived a very difficult childbirth and took months to recover. And the doctor, who happened to have been a from man, spoke, the doctor of this patient spoke and said, this episode does not reflect or or remind us that you know there are times when um when when people have difficulty in childbirth this episode reminds us that every 10,000 that there are 10,000 births going on without any problems and complications which is unbelievable and I'd like to extend right. that by saying you know what you're telling us about this 25% doesn't just remind us that we're all lucky to have children but but even now in 2021 with all the technology in the world you need that blessing from above and the hashkacha that uh, that we all pray for in order to actually become parents and raise families, and I think it's an important message, especially in an in an era of uh, of leisure and comfort, when we think we have, when we think whatever we want, we can have. Look, this is this is the very essence of the community in which I support. Right. You know these these families, these individuals are desperate to have a child. They they yeah. look all around them, and everybody else seems to be doing exactly what they cannot. And look, I mean, some of that is because still in today's day and age, we're not talking about these things at our Shabbos tables, at our Simchas, at our, you know, we're not talking about them publicly in these, you know, sort of semi-intimate, you know, celebrations. We're not, or, or events, we're not doing that. But what we know is that it's happening everywhere. And so it's this this notion that everybody else like has and we do not is and and also the uncertainty of all of it. It's the like if you knew that you would be holding a baby in your arms in even two years or yeah. three years. Yeah. The anxiety yeah. and yep. the angst yep. all of the the time up until that, you would be you would be sad and you would yep. be you know, you would still feel bereft. Yep. But at least you would know that you had a happy ending. A hundred percent. The problem with all of this is you never is know. The un- 
Right. right. You just yeah. never know. Listen, uh, Dr. Barron, I mean, we just met today, so I'm not sure you have a sense of humor, but uh, I'd have to assume based on the situations you've been through, you have to have one. Can you play this game with me for a minute of the most ridiculous thing that anybody ever said to you in these situations? We, we sure. D- oh, thank you. Go right ahead. You have you have the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll just take one. Go ahead. Give me one of them. <laughs> Look, you, you know what? I'll, I'll sort of go ridiculous, and then and then I'll go like you know, and, and then I'll bring it back to Good. current events. Unfortunately, right? You know, I, I, about what happened last week—the horrific tragedy in Mayrone. So right. we're doing ridiculous, and then you know, bringing right. it back. Right. I, I you know this. Hashem has a plan. Everything happens for a reason. Right. Why are you struggling? You should just have more faith, more amuna, more bitachon. You know, Hashem only does this to people who can handle it. Uh, like, like, like all, all of this stuff, ridiculous stuff, is, is you know, is it, people say this stuff anytime there's a tragedy. They're saying it now. Right. They said it to me then, and over and over again, and during not, all of my years. And it's not consoling. And, People need it's to know just, that it's not it, consoling. It's just, it, it just, it's not, it's not only it's not consoling, but it's just, it doesn't meet people where they are. It just like flippantly says like, eh, doesn't matter that you're sad. Just like push that all away and just like, remember Hashem is there and he'll take care of you. Like, okay, yes. Like, yeah. If, if you're a believer, if you're someone who has a deep connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then you do believe that, but in times of great distress, of tragedy, of grief, having people not see you in the place that you are, in that terrible despair, and instead flippantly giving you these remarks because they don't know what else to say. I don't believe it comes from a bad place. It comes from a place where people think that it's actually going to be helpful. But everyone needs to know when to keep their mouth shut. Correct, correct, correct. Silence is so intimidating. People need to know that silence is usually the best way to go. Look, there's a reason why at a Shiva house, the halacha is right, right. that you shouldn't speak right. until spoken to. Right, and that nobody, nobody follows that anymore. It's awful. Right, right. And so I'm very careful, very careful whenever I go to a Shiva house, even if there's, you know, even if they're talking about nonsense, about yep. shush. I do not say a word. I wait until sure. someone has spoken to me. I wait, and then and then we have a discussion that's appropriate. Look, you need to let the mourner yeah. lead the conversation. Correct. The conversation, if they want to talk about stuff, fine. Right. Like, that's helpful and for, if they, and for if them. They, and if they want you included, you'll know they want exactly. you included. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But but this this like this you know sort of coming at it from on high this religious toxicity this this like you know, we know better than you, and you're you're going through this because of this. None of those things are ever helpful, yeah. ever. At any point, whether it's immediately, you know, in the immediate moment surrounding a tragedy, or years later when people say things like, people say to me now, because they know that I run this organization and help so many people, they say, oh, well, now you know why you had to go through all that. I'm like, no, oh, actually, oh, oh, God. no, no, <laughs> oh, gosh. no. Unbelievable. Uh, I got to get a final word from you about the vaccine hesitancy. I mean, I know that uh, 
the people at Joma have been trying their darndest to get everybody to focus on on getting this done and making our community and our general community as safe as possible going forward. Um, any final statement regarding those who who are in our community who still wonder about the efficacy and whether it's worthwhile to do all this with the vaccine? Look, I, I'm part of the advisory board of Joma, and we are here to provide information and education. We are not forcing anyone to do anything. We are here to give people good scientific information, dispel myths, and to try to encourage people to get the vaccine, although we're not forcing anyone. Right. There is free will. Everybody right. has free will. Right. But we're, we're trying to encourage all individuals, including the fertility community, to get the vaccine because when because we know that if you were to get the illness, while no one can predict what your course will be, those in this community, in my community, the fertility community, because of their immune state, potentially could have a worse side effect. Right. And so we're we're making those recommendations for this community. And also, there's a lot of misinformation out there about how the vaccine can affect fertility. The vaccine can change your your cycle. Like, I, I, I my last word on this, I, I what I want to say to the community at large is, yes, do we know that the vaccine can potentially change your cycle for up to one to two months? Yes. Wow. That information has been borne out, meaning if you're normally a 28-day cycle person, it might be 20 days or it might be 32 days. That's what I mean by changing your cycle. Right. What it does not do, and there has been research out of Israel and a number of other places that have borne this out, so to speak, in my <laughs> community, I can say born, right. um, that has borne this out. It does not, they've studied women who've been going through the infertile, um, in vitro process, the IVF process, and they've studied women on different, um, in different fertility communities. It does not change the number or the quality of the eggs that you might be producing if you were on those fertility medicines for IVF. It does not change anyone's sperm count quality, anything like that. That's what the research that we know. So especially in the firm community, there are lots of myths out there that it really depresses or decreases or affects your fertility. I'm not sure where that comes from because the research has not shown that at all. And so that's the last word I'd like to leave with you. Does it change your cycle? It can. Doesn't doesn't absolutely, but it might. But that doesn't mean it's going to affect your chances of having a baby. Can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Dr. Amy Barron, a pleasure to meet you in this forum and continue your amazing work on behalf of people who really need you. Amen. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Dr. Amy Barron, uh, a reminder, information, go to joma.org. Very simple, J-O-W-M-A.org. The folks at Joma have a great uh, resource center. It's a tab at the top of their page that says... COVID-19 resources. Check it out. Also, they have those amazing videos we've been telling you about, uh, some of them really specific, healthcare professionals, uh, doulas, uh, etc. And then, of course, for the general community as well. You check all those out by going to their website 
at joma.org. More coming up. It's a Wednesday morning edition of JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. Amy Barron of Joma. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure to listen to JM Rewind every single week for great highlights of JM and the AM interviews. Plenty more coming up if you keep it here on NSN, the Malcolm Siegel Network.